As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Lisa Bramowitz and uh, Tom Keene uh, right now. And what we'd like to do is go to Paris. And it is a Paris of J.P. Morgan that is important. In World War One. They, I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, and Francine Lacroix is going to correct me. It is Cator's Place Vendôme, and it was the commitment of the J.P. Morgan Bank to France in the heat of World War One. She is joined in Paris uh, with James Diamond, our Francine Lacroix. How is my pronunciation, Francine? Tom, full marks for French pronunciation. You're almost French. I'm so excited for you. I am delighted to be joined by Jamie Diamond, J.P. Morgan Chairman and Chief Executive Officer. Thank you for joining us, as always, debt ceiling or banking turmoil? What are you most worried about? Happy to be here. Well, I think the debt ceiling is potentially catastrophic. Yeah. So that, that's a whole different issue. Hopefully it won't happen. You know, the banking crisis, I still believe, will kind of sort its way through. And it's not anything like 08 or 09. Uh, only a couple of people are offside with all these various things, which you knew about. Um, so hopefully, you know, it's getting near the tail end of that. But if you're Janet Yellen right now, what would you do differently? I don't know. I think we need to finish the bank crisis. I think we've, been, we've had uncertain policy on mergers, this First Horizon deal. I think we have to assume there'll be a little bit more. So you know, whatever the FDIC, the OCC, the Federal Reserve, you know, whatever they need to do to, to uh, make it better, they should do. Be thoughtful, be very forward-looking, you know, not be surprised constantly. Because some of these things have been known about for quite a while. And so uh, we've handled three, SVB, Signature, First Republic, and so. But I think it's very important. The regional banks, who I've been speaking to like every day for the last week, they're quite strong. You know, they're quite worried because of the you know, run on deposits. Like but their financial results are good. Their yeah. financial results are going to be good, okay, next quarter. You know, they're earning money. They've got very good clientele, very diversified. Uh, uh, and they're, they're quite so strong. So for like a comprehensive solution. So if you're asking Janet Yellen to get the job done, what does that look like, that solution? I'm not asking for a comprehensive solution. Why not? Just be prepared for problems. There's no, we don't need a comprehensive solution. What do we need right now? Do we, do we need regulators to look at short sellers of banks? Yes. You know, like, look, my folks would tell me that that's not the problem, the short selling ban. If you actually analyze stocks and short sales, it's not, doesn't seem that big a deal. I think they may partially be wrong. Uh, because, as you know, some people are unscrupulous and they use other means to go short. I think that, if, but if you look at the detail, the SEC has the 
enforcement capability to look at what people are doing by name in, in options, derivatives, short sales. And they should go, if someone's doing anything wrong, people are in collusion or people going short and then making a tweet you know, about a bank, they should go after them. And, and, and vigorously, and they should be punished to the full extent the law allows it. So uh, I think it's possible it's taking place. We have no evidence of it, no. but you know, my experience in life has been, don't, don't assume too much. Do, do you think that they're looking into it? I hope so. I don't know. When you look at some of the position of J.P. Morgan, of course, you didn't really buy any long-dated bonds. And at the time, a lot of people said, look, stop hoarding cash. Do you think regulators and investors had pushed some of these banks to, to take unwarranted risk? Yes, I do, but let's be clear. The people to blame are the bank CEOs and the bank boards and things like that. Having said that, I think there's been a humility on the part of regulators that, that the Federal Reserve itself never forecasts interest rates going up. Not one Fed governor forecast it. And whether you forecast it or not, you should be stress testing people for it. Their stress tests always had low rates. We always knew about uninsured deposits. And there were huge incentives that banks to put securities and held to maturity, lower capital requirements. Huge incentives to own treasuries, lower capital requirements, and they counted for liquidity. And I, I'm hoping all that gets looked at. And they should look at it and say, yeah, okay, we were a little bit part of the problem as opposed to just pointing fingers. So this is what, not a regulation problem, it's a supervision problem. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. They, they, they become very related. I mean, supervisors look at, are you, are you doing the right thing by regulations? And so, and like even the stress test, I've always thought that, you know, when you have one stress test and you have a company completely focused on that for three months, you know, does it lull people to a false sense of security that all these other things aren't going to happen? And all these other things in history always happen. And so, you know, I think it was a little bit of a mistake to have one stress test. God, I'm not asking them to do many at this level of detail, but, you know, our stress test is 200,000 pages long. Do you think that last 100,000 pages added value? And my view is it did not. Do you think but things will change because of this? Is this like a catalyst? I think it's going to get worse for banks. I think that people... What do you mean by worse? It's just more regulations and more rules and more requirements. I, ho I, I hope they do it very thoughtfully because, you know, if you, we love the community banks, the regional banks. We're the biggest banks of those folks. But, you know, if you overdo certain rules, requirements, regulations, you know, some of these community banks tell me they have, you know, more compliance people than loan officers. You know, and so at one point, you make it harder for them to do business. There are already hundreds of rules in place. And in a lot of ways, it's the mix of the rules. If you're going to change liquidity, maybe not capital. If you're going to change capital, maybe not liquidity. If you're going to add TLAC, then maybe you should do something with deposit insurance. They should, they should sit down and have a very thoughtful conversation about what those things are and what we want the outcome to be. And if you look at the present outcome, a lot of things are leaving banks. And they should. You know, I'm not, and if that's what they want, so be it. But that should be done with the forethought. That should not be done because you're just putting rules and regulations in place and you don't know the consequences. The mortgage business, for example, is, you know, largely, not largely, 80% out of banks today. And just be careful about what you, what you wish for. So you bought First Republic. You've had, I imagine, now a good look at what's inside it. What did you find out? Yeah, no, we had a good look before we bought it. We, okay, that, we that's had, reassuring, but anything that you we, found out We had out 800 people working around the <laughs> clock for a long time to, to look at something like that. And, and, and in reality, look, they did some things really well. Like, if you talk to their customers, I'm getting calls and emails and great, great culture, great customers and things like that. Right. Their credit is kind of pristine. You know, that's good. So, of course, we marked all the market and we're all in very good shape. And we've hedged all the interest rate exposure uh, together. We've got 
thousands of people now going out, learning about what their best is. We want the best of both. We're not the kind of company that comes in our highway, our way of the highway. And so there's no surprise there. Uh, you know, it's, if it had to make sense for shareholders, but you know, this notion, this notion that it was an unbelievable thing, no, it was a nice thing for shareholders. That's my, I have to do that. But we also really did it to assimilate the bank in a way that's very safe for the system uh, and it didn't cost uninsured depositors, didn't cost the FDIC, it cost the FDIC as little as possible. But I also want to point out, I'd be fine if they want to change the rules a little bit to make it easier for, for a regional bank to buy a big bank. And the other thing about big banks, which again is, I know, I know, but the thing about big banks, we need healthy big banks. We're the best banking system in the world. You know, and you want You're that. You're very big. Yeah, but we're not. Banks are becoming smaller and smaller as a part of the global system. So when they look at banks, they say, oh, it's big. But when you look at the banking system to the system, mortgages have left, a lot of private credits left, certain trading functions have left. A lot of things are going to leave. You have Apple, you have the neo banks, you have. You, you better be a little more thoughtful about when you say we mean banking per se. And so. But, but the, the U.S., the Americans should not fear too much finance consolidation in your hands. No, because you know, most of our size accrues to our clients. So if you look at, you know, we do most, a large, small banks can't do, we do like banking large corporations of 50 countries around the world and move $10 trillion a day. They, you know, it's hard. So these are, these are big complex things. We're not big and complex we want to be. Yeah. We're big and complex because the people we serve are big and complex. We bank countries, the World Bank, you know, we do a lot of things. And yes, we also bank consumers in the United States. So, but I want the community banks to thrive. I mean, like I said, we want to do everything we can to help them. We didn't want this to happen. We didn't no. cause it to happen. The second it happened, we, we knew it was bad for all banks. But are you too big to fail? I don't know what that word means anymore. I mean, we're not going to fail, and I don't know what that means. But we certainly didn't mean it to be an advantage. Like, uh, so, you know, we've asked all our people when this crisis happened, I don't want anyone soliciting any client or any banker from any of the, any right. bank that's, you know, regional bank or community bank, et cetera. So, um, is, is there anything else that you'd be, that you'd be buying? I mean, some of the smaller banks fall, no. you know, fall that's it. it. No. I mean, we're going to have a lot of blowback on having bought this one, but it, it was the right thing to do. You know, but uh, we'll get the blowback. But again, my job is this, people at this thing, they always look at like the financial deal. Forget the financial deal. 800 people working around the clock. 10,000 people deployed now to consolidate systems, risk, fraud, credit, payments, branches, real estate, vendors, technology. It's a lot of work, you know, and it distracts us from those other things. And so, uh, you know, like I said, we did it. It, it was marginally beneficial for shareholders. Yeah. It was good for the system, but, uh, and, you know, we gotta, now we have to be prepared for the other side of that mountain. Uh, how worried are you about the debt ceiling? So Donald Trump yesterday in a town hall with CNN, A, did not seem too worried, and two, actually told Republicans to stick to their guns. Well, one more thing he doesn't know very much about. Uh, it, it, let me put it in two categories. One is actual default. That is potentially catastrophic. And you can go through a million ways, and, but everyone, anyone who knows that's potentially catastrophic. And I don't think it's going to happen because it gets catastrophic. And the closer you get to it, you will have panic. And so the closer you get, you have markets get volatile, maybe the stock market go down, the treasury markets will have their own problems. It's amazing you already have certain T-bills trading 3% and right next to them 5%. This is not good. And people should remember the American 
financial system is the foundation to the to the global economic system. And so, and the closer we get, more panic, we might get downgraded. The last time we were downgraded, we had like 65 or 70% debt to GDP. Now it's 105. Now our deficits are two or three times that that we had back then. So, you know, we better be very careful. And I wish we didn't get there at all. I'm respectful of both sides who, you know, one side wants to use it to make up for, we got jammed down their throats, you know, and I'm, I would love to get rid of the debt ceiling thing, but, Please negotiate a deal. Do, do you think that it'll be at the end of the day the markets that will spur a deal? That we have to get to it, the point where there's where there's panic. It, it's a really bad idea because pa- panic becomes something that is not good, and it could affect other markets around the world. But yes, at the end of the day, if it gets to that panic point, people have to react, and we've we've seen that before. Another thing about markets is always remember panic is the one thing that scares people. Like they they take irrational decisions. I remember even in 08, people were selling certain securities at 40% of what they would be worth if we had a Great Depression. But they were like, I want out, I want cash, I'm not betting my my family's money on this or my company's money. People will panic, and that, again, we gotta be very careful about getting close to a situation that causes that. Did you get a call from Janet Yellen about this? I'm not gonna talk about personal calls I'm getting. I, we've all spoken about that ceiling. I mean, everyone, that's that's everyone, there's no- but, but for um, big banks, are you ready? To, actually, how do you prepare for a, a we, possible We have difference? a- group of people who are very smart, who are looking at, again, it's very unfortunate, it's, it's time consuming, hopefully it won't happen, but it, it affects contracts, collateral, clearing houses, clients, it affects clients differently around the world. You have to then anticipate what people are going to do, which is very different than the legality of it. And, uh, you know, and the closer we get, the more those, kind of that war room will start. Now it's taking place once a week, but my guess is sometime, in, call it May 21st, it'll be every day. And then it'll be three times a day. And then it'll be much more conversation with clients about what they need to do to help to get them through it and things like that. It's very unfortunate. It should never happen this way. Fortress Diamond is always about the balance sheet. Should there be a special commission looking at you know, debt in the U.S. That, that you should run? Oh, God, no. Why not? <laughs> I don't want to. On China? They went after tech. They're looking now at finance. What kind of message does it tell companies that want to do business there? Well, I, I think when you say they're looking at finance, it's been very limited. They've been very much more careful about touching the, the financial system or outsiders. But look, this is a serious subject. And anything that relates to national security, I'm a patriot first and I'm going to salute my government. So put that, but put that aside. What the government should do and wants to do and is now saying they are going to do is have conversations. They're going to be tough, but they should be thoughtful. Certain things are really national security, certain things are not. Yep. You know, and we shouldn't confuse the two. America and China have a lot of common interests, climate, nuclear proliferation, anti-terrorism, global stability, you know, and we have differences. You know, we're capitalists, they're not, you know, and it's okay. We could sort it out, but but we need to keep the Western alliances together, not just around war and Ukraine, but around strategic, economic relationships, including trade, including trade. We can't take trade off the table every time we talk to, you know, Europe or Asia and stuff like that. So I would go back into TPP. I would surround the world. I'd want to keep the world safe for democracy, and I'd want to have open markets, particularly with uh, Europe. And I, when I was here last time was when we passed the IRA Act. A lot of great things in that act. But there are things I don't like, like too much social engineering side of it, and but also it pissed off all of our allies. But like, on the China side, so if they if they start doing more noise on finance, does that hurt Chinese growth? 
Like probably. I think you've already seen. Uh, uh, it's not trade, but you've seen investment going both ways, coming down, and and. That's okay in the short run, but in the long run, we should say what we're, and the government's got to decide. This is, this is not going to be you know, business companies decide, nor should they. So when Congress criticizes business sometimes, okay, there, there may be truth to that. They have to decide what is okay, what's not okay, what do they want, what's security, and that's around trade, that's around investment, and that's around sharing IP. Okay, I give you a million pounds, or maybe you take it, you know, your own million pounds. Where do you invest Jake right Morgan. now? Jake uh, Morgan. I, I, I wouldn't buy sovereign debt anywhere. Why? I think there's too much, uh, I don't, I, the amount of fiscal stimulus took place and still surging through the system, the amount of QE, these were extraordinary numbers. And not just in the US, but in Europe and other parts of the world. And when I say extraordinary, I mean extraordinary. And therefore, it, it, I think there's a chance you have more inflation than people think. So while the Fed controls short rates, they don't completely control longer rates. And then you could see longer rates ticking up because of higher inflation. And even if there's a mild recession, they continue to tick up. You know, a lot of us experienced that in the 70s and 80s, and I would be a little worried about that. So rates are kind of so, low, spreads are still kind of low. Okay, so you're not putting them in sovereign. Where are you putting that million? I'm central banks. For, for stability, if you look at fragmentation, I mean, the, the world seems a little bit odd, like equities are doing one thing, but we keep on being told there's a recession. Why is there this massive idiosyncrasy? Okay, that's the contradiction. There's still consumers in America, job, unemployment is 3.5%, home prices have gone up for 10 or 15 years, uh, stock prices have gone up for 10 or 15 years, they have a trillion dollars more in their checking accounts, they're spending that money. You see it in travel, you see it in restaurants, you see it in, ho you've been around here, you see it in hotels, you see it, that's all good. But the excess money is being spent down. So the bite of that will, is gonna happen later this year, early next year, and the bite of QT hasn't happened yet. So if you have higher inflation, so I think it's a reasonable thing to say those things are coming to fruition maybe sometime in the end of the year. Yeah. We don't know the effect of that. You know, if there's a, I mean, I would take a mild recession happily right now. I am far more concerned about geopolitics, Ukraine, trade, you know, Russia, our relations with China, et cetera. And I always have to remind all of our public, America has a 75,000 per person GDP. China's is 15. We have all the food, water, and energy we want. They import 10 million barrels of oil a day. I mean, it's not, they're not a 10-foot giant and us a four-foot pygmy. We have to manage ourselves better. I think we can grow more, be more thoughtful. But in the market, so, you know, a lot of people say it's commercial real estate. I mean, we talk about nothing else. Everybody knows that that could break. Is there something that we're not seeing that could break? I think it's amazing when you talk about markets that sometimes it's, and the press sometimes, like a bunch of birds flocking to one thing with endless comments about it. Yes, that's an issue. So, you know, if you look at office uh, real estate, in B and C real estate with private problem, Chicago, New York, Portland, Seattle, uh, but probably not Nashville, Tampa, Orlando, Miami, et cetera. So you gotta, you gotta be a little more thoughtful about it. And I think if I remember, banks have 600 billion of office commercial real estate. You know, they had a cushion. So even if it dropped in value, they still have equity in it. Maybe some of that will go bad, particularly if there's a recession. They're, they're, they're gonna be okay. It, it may take a few banks down. That's normal stuff. That isn't abnormal. What is abnormal is the war, trade, the future of democracy. That is abnormal. I'm much more concerned know, about that than the markets trade that. Right. If there's a big geopolitics, there's there's how do the markets talk them? I don't do that. Okay. Be, look, if I was a, we're, we're cautious. Yeah. You know, I remind people, I'm not. 
businesses aren't there to trade us sometimes. They're there to serve yeah. our clients, okay? And so we're going to serve our clients no matter what happens. Yeah. James, okay. very quickly, final question. How are you feeling about the Epstein deposition this month? I, I am so sad that we had any relations with that man whatsoever. You know, we had top lawyers evaluating this. From the SEC enforcement, the DOJ, you know, and obviously had we known then, we know today, we would have done things differently. But it's very unfortunate. And I have deep respect for these women. Uh, that doesn't mean we're liable for the action of an individual, but I do have deep respect for them. My heart goes out to them. And uh, um. Jimmy Diamond, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Back to you. Francine Lacroix, thank you so much. A conversation with the chairman and the chief executive officer of J.P. Morgan. I would really underscore off of his annual letter his focus on geopolitics. And as he says in his letter, in his Wall Street Journal essay of a number of months ago, he is very concerned of the Western alliances, including France. Lacroix from Paris uh, this morning. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Joining us now, John Writing on his Bank of England. Citigroup comes out, they say, we got it wrong. We were calling recession doom and gloom in your United Kingdom. It looks more resilient. Do you buy the resilience? Um, the UK is a small open economy, and what happens in the rest of the world is going to be very important for the UK. Um, I'm, I'm still a bit skeptical on that. Uh, I think the full impact of uh, uh, adjustments post Brexit that that's still out there for the uh, right. for the UK. But what I'm more skeptical about is the decline in inflation, where in, the inflation rate in the UK is currently 10.1 percent. 
And within a couple of years, they're down to basically 1%. And I don't see how you get that kind of inflation drop with an interest rate of 4.5%. Um, it, 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 I'd be right. very surprised if in the U.S. we're above 5%. We've got to, and the inflation problem is not as bad you, as in the U.K. That There's more rate hikes than the market has priced in. You are the single best person I know in the world qualified for this delicate question. I began this morning with Jeffrey Yu on this. I was thunderstruck by what the Ph.D. from Stanford, Hugh Pill, said this morning about begging United Kingdom people to spend less money. It reminded me back to the 30s, Clement Attlee, the elites telling United Kingdom, please don't spend money. I'm absolutely, the the non-American-like language that we hear out of the United Kingdom elites and authorities now is absolutely exceptional. Well, I, I, I think it was very, I agree, but I think it was very interesting uh, that Don Com, I think it was brought up just the other day about the UK, there's too many Keynesians, there's too much um, groupthink. Um, inflation is a product, in the end, of too much money chasing too few goods and services. And it's not about, um, in my opinion, uh, how much consumers spend. You know, that, that's part of the transmission mechanism, rate hikes, soften the housing market, they ultimately soften consumer spending. But, you know, if the Bank of England had put more thought in the first place to not, as if, same is true with the Federal Reserve, if they put more thought in the first place to not letting the inflation genie out of the bottle, he wouldn't be out there begging consumers not to spend. I mean, he, you know, or, or saying people have got to get used to being worse okay, well, off. Just because of time, John, I want to bring this over. And, and, you know, we're talking here, folks, about a middle 20th century theory of theology, if you will, in the United Kingdom. Do you sense a Keynesian tilt at the federal system of the United States? Do they have illusions of a demand-side ordering of people to spend less money here, or are we to a new regime in America? Well, um, that's exactly what the Fed's trying to do. But what has prevented monetary policy from biting on the economy was all of the fiscal injections, the income support provided during the pandemic, which ended up in people's bank accounts. So um, at at the peak, people had $2.5 trillion more in aggregate in their bank accounts than they would have had had there not been a pandemic. So it's very hard to slow the economy down on the consumer side. It's much easier on the housing side. Given the stimulus. Olivier Blanchard calls it the Biden stimulus. Do you and Conrad DeQuadro suggest we've run out the stimulus and now we're back to some form of normal American economy? Um, I I don't think we've run out all the stimulus. It's probably close to a trillion dollars still of of excess savings, but we have seen an, an adjustment in the savings rate, um, which is still lower than one would expect, uh, given where inflation is, given where interest rates are. People are still spending more Mm. than you would expect, um, given given fundamentals because of this these excess savings that happen. I got thirty seconds. Do you have a recession call? I I, I think that in both the UK and the US is inevitable, but not imminent. Um, The inversion of uh, the three-month T-bill to the 10-year yield has invariably correctly predicted a recession a year or so out. Um, Now, we may have a rolling recession, 
the housing market's in recession, right. the manufacturing sector's in recession, um, the service sector's still going, uh, relatively speaking, uh, uh, strongly. So m maybe right. it's a rolling recession, but uh, I, I, I think it's inevitable. John Riney, thank you. Just brilliant there with his experience with the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve System. He is with Breen uh, at Capital. We have to get to Megan Horniman, but but Lisa, I'm sorry, to four digits, 3.8578%. We are now 15 full basis points in on the two-year yield in a long cup of Sanka. I mean, it's amazing how we've moved. Yes, and at the same time, the volatility in the two-year really is what gets my attention, let alone which direction it's going in. The fact that it mm -hmm. whipsaws back and forth, how do you get any stability given uh, some sort of risk appetite without that? Joining us now to discuss as we head into uh, a really important hour. Megan Horneman, Chief Investment Officer at Veridans Capital Advisors. Megan, as we look for the data in the U.S. in a half an hour time, how much are you expecting it to really represent the strength, the resilience that so many people are rejecting right now as simply a passing phenomenon? Yeah, I, I think that there is some some inconsistency in what we're seeing in from whether it's the labor market showing showing strength, but then there's really that's the only thing from an economic standpoint in the U.S. that's showing strength. Whether you look at manufacturing or you look at housing, um, all of these things are suggesting that we're headed towards a downturn. And then you take into a, into account the Federal Reserve tightening cycle and then the tighter lending conditions. These things are going to start to filter into data not right away, but we think in in yeah. the rest of this year. I want to go to your heritage, Leg Mason in Baltimore, all the great value house action of Leg Mason and on to Deutsche Bank as a substantial East Coast competitor uh, to J.P. Morgan. We're going to talk to Jamie Dimon here in about nine minutes. He's salvaging our banking crisis as it is. Is he going to have to do more from where Verdant sits? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think the regional side of the banking crisis is over. Um, I do think that the bigger banks are going to have to step in and do more. Um, what's changed? If you look at over the past couple of weeks since he came in and rescued the last bank, nothing's changed from a regulatory standpoint. Nothing's changed from the Federal Reserve. In fact, the only thing that's changed is that the Federal Reserve has said, hey, we're not we, we're not going to see rate cuts right away. So the pressure that was on the small and mid cap banks mm -hmm. earlier this year with higher interest rates and taking losses there, that's still is the case. And that's going to be a problem for these banks. So in the absence of knowing anything that's changed, I don't think that that unfortunately is over. So I think there's going to be more to come. You have the advantage of not being Manhattan based. How does commercial real estate look like for Verdon's capital? I mean, I know it's off your remit, but what is all the analysis you see that you listen to on CRE? Um, it's, a, it's something that we're concerned about. Um, I don't think that it's being talked about enough. Um, obviously, we're concerned just because of a slowing economy and higher vacancies. But then you kind of the double effect on that is that we have higher interest rates. And then you throw on top of that that we have this maturity wall. That's where the big concern comes in. So between 23, 24, and 25, these are big years where there's going to be these commercial real estate um, loans are going to have to refinance. And they're refinancing at higher rates as well as in a situation where you have tighter lending conditions.
That's an area of concern, an area of strength that we may get a, a better sense of in about 20 minutes' time is when we get the PPI, the factory input uh, prices that comes out in the U.S. It's expected to be significantly below CPI, that sort of headline consumer figure, which is being captured as profits at a lot of companies that are actually increasing their profit margins at a time when people expected them to shrink for them to absorb some of the inflation uh, against some pushback by consumers. Is this giving you optimism to go into certain certain stocks to go into certain credit? No. Um, unfortunately, at, at this time, I think that that's probably short-lived. The consumer is weak. Um, we've seen that in some of the recent data. Um, and we've also seen that with the fact that they're relying a lot more on credit card debt. Um, they're not spending the way that they used to. If you looked at even the CPI report yesterday, um, that showed that airfare is actually starting to come down. So you're starting to see some weakness in that part of the, mar- the, air- part of the economy that was consumers were really spending money on. Um, so your leisure and hospitality. There's a lot of cracks surfacing, so I'm not optimistic that cons- that businesses can continue to pass on those costs without it further hurting the consumers. So are you basically in the camp that there is going to be this disinflation that will accompany the weakness that we see as it accelerates throughout the end of the year? Basically, what's been pushing everybody to keep going into bonds? Yeah, I do think that we are going to be looking at, again, slowing inflation, a slower, a slowdown in the economy, most likely a recession. Um, the inflation situation has been improving, and we can't deny that, but there still is a lot of work to go. The biggest inconsistency, and you mentioned that people are going into bonds, the biggest inconsistency that we see is that investors are, are pricing in rate cuts, and that's not something that we see. The Fed is not there. They don't have the ability to do that with inflation where it is. They can't come in with the stop-and-go approach, which is what they did in the 70s and 80s, which proved to be um, not the right thing to do. I think they're going to stay on hold. Interest rates will stay higher for longer. Um, They've made it clear in their last meeting that they will sacrifice economic growth to achieve their goal of bringing inflation down. So I think the bond market's not necessarily pricing that in. Unfortunately, within bonds, I think the best place to be right now is just to park money in cash, have dry powder, take advantage of opportunities because they will arise in the second half of this year. And then on equity markets, do you deploy that cash here or do you just wait, wait, wait? Um, it depends on what we see from an equity standpoint. I think equities are similar to bonds. The equity market, specifically some of the high growth technology names, these are, I think, still too high from a, a price to earnings multiple. I think they have room to decline and kind of realize the fact that the Fed's not going to come in and save the day. Um, they've been able to do that in the past. They're not able to do it this time around. So I think there's going right. to be some correction here in U.S. equities. Megan, thank you so much. Megan Horneman there uh, with Vernon's Capital Advisors. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Thomas Azores is head of fixed income research at Chigas, a Baird company, and joins us this morning. You have the advantage of down the hall is one Jay Trenard, Jason Trenard, uh, looking at the equity market, folding in the JP Morgans of the world uh, into your fixed income analysis. What is the strategic view on the length of this banking crisis? Does it get fixed? Uh, what's your definition of fixed? Do we have more bank failures along the way? Probably. Does it become a systemic risk, particularly to SIFIs? Probably not. Does it become a risk to super regional banks? Probably not as well. But is there incremental credit tightening to the U.S. economy from this ahead of us? Absolutely. And with monetary policy acting with the lag, we have to assume there are, there are more shoes to drop here and more banks to fail. Which spread or comparison of two yields is most valid to you to get the temperature of PacWest and other banks? I'm looking at three-month tenure, but there's debt ceiling issues in that as well. Which spread tells the best story? Well, three-month tenure might be a better measure for banks because you're looking at funding cost relative on the front end of the curve versus their um, essentially what are they, mm. they potentially getting for yield for new assets they might be purchasing. But I don't think anything really gives you a good picture of how much their net interest margins have compressed over the last two years. I mean, those are probably zero to negative at this point in time, given where they bought those assets. Those long duration assets might have been bought at a yield of two, two and a half percent, and their funding costs today might be four and a half to five and a quarter percent. This is a really important point that we have moved from just simply deposits being there to even the deposits staying are going to be a problem given how much they're going to have to pay uh, to keep them. From your vantage point, what are you expecting in terms of the number of failures and the ramifications for monetary policy and broader market conditions? Well, probably low um, double digits, maybe high single digits, so maybe not many more to come and fairly small in size. But you got to remember, though, that's the norm over any given two, three year period in the past. Keep in mind, from 1980 to about 1992, we had over a thousand bank failures. In the last dozen years, we've had about a dozen failures. So we're, you yeah. can say we're, we're overdue. So the norm might be two to three per year on average. Well, but this is the question, right? If it is just the norm, is it not setting any alarm bells? Doesn't change anything with respect to the rate hiking cycle? It doesn't change anything with respect to your approach to what you invest in? Well, it, if let me answer this from a Fed's perspective. This absolutely should change their, their perspective and what they do going forward. You have monetary policy acting with the lag. You have multiple bank failures and you have at best, multiple banks are going to be in negative net interest margin for at least the next 12 months. That's, that's That's a reason to pause right there. Mission is not accomplished on inflation, but that's a good reason to pause tightening to see how the incremental tightening from the credit tightening that is to come plays out. You may end up having to hike again in the future, but this is a good opportunity to pause. Brief us on James Diamond coming up here in 45 minutes as well. This conversation is frankly just as important because you're in the trenches looking at the ramifications of a trust in the J.P. Morgan company or, frankly, Bank of America to save the day. Are they going to come in and have to save the day again? 
Um, I, I don't think they're going to have to, whether they, they do come in and make additional plays here, that I can't speak to, but I don't think they're going to need to. I think that this is a system that uh, essentially your super regionals are in good standing right now. Your SIFIs are in good standing. You're talking about smaller banks going forward. There's going to have to be consolidation in the regional banks. Some of them may be bought. Within a, within a, I don't mean to interrupt, but this is an important nuance. Within a bidding process where the government's forced to take the low bidder or just in a normal M&A context? Both. You could, ha- you could have additional failures where there are essentially negative net asset values there uh, that the government is forced to take the lowest bidder. But you should also be expecting going forward to see a typical M&A where some regional banks consolidate and become super regionals going forward. And even some super regionals may grow themselves to become, to breach that SIFI threshold. That should be the expectation going forward. The reality is I think the U.S. banking system is, is migrating more towards what you might have in Canada or Australia where you have a, a few very large dominant banks. It's not going to be three or four like you have in those regions. It might be eight to ten in the U.S. Let's stop Taylor's question about financial stability and to what we're going to get in about 50 minutes, which is the latest read on inflation as yeah. well as uh, the labor market. There is a question about whether there is more strength and whether what we've seen in the banking sector is more of the normalcy, as you point out, rather than a sign of some sort of massive fissure. If it is a sign of strength, what does that do in terms of the stickiness of inflation as well as growth, just like what we saw over in England. Yeah, well, I think uh, you had mentioned earlier uh, discussion on sales from places like Prada, luxury goods. The U.S. economy still continues to be driven by a consumer, which whether they're spending more than they can afford It's irrelevant. They're still spending more, and the labor market is not yet rolling over. So there's still strength to the consumer side. There's still strength to the labor market, and in particular in the retail space and in the luxury space and the leisure space. So so there's still strength to come in the U.S. economy, and there's still likely to be sticky inflation. What that means is that even if the Fed pauses here— they're not likely to cut as soon as the market is pricing. And the market is pricing in rate cuts for, we'll say, July to August. That seems too early, given how sticky inflation is and how strong the labor market continues to be. We do think the labor market's going to roll over, but we think inflation is going to remain sticky, which means that there's going to be more stress on banks because the Fed funds rate is going to remain at this 5% to 5.25% longer, and you're going to continue to drag, the, uh, drag on credit formation and stress on banks because net interest margins are going to remain negative for longer. How do you play this? Because it's really against consensus, at least as it's being played out in market pricing. Well, that's a tough question because right now you look at equity valuations, they don't reflect a recession risk and they also don't reflect the fact that there's credit tightening to come later on. Same thing for corporate credit markets. Spreads are a little bit too tight at these levels. So I think you play this by being very cautious. You continue to hold cash at elevated or above average levels and you wait for something to break to the downside. Two-part question. we got to be quick because of the time. Where's Trenard on the equity market? Is he called a bottom of the bear market in October, or does he have a more cautious view? Uh, more cautious. We're expecting equity prices, equity valuations okay. to dip lower again. So you had a 10-year yield, 4.20%. The 10-year yield is cratered down. What are the ramifications to you if the 10-year breaks down to a new lower yield below 3.30%? Well, so we're, our forecast is about 3.2 for a bottom this cycle. We could easily on intraday get down close to 3. If we we get down to or below three, it tells us that something is breaking on the credit side that's bigger than a regional right. bank. That would be my my uh, takeaway right. from that. Hugely valuable. Tom, thank you so much. Tom Storrs is with us with Strategus, a Baird company. 
Brian Weiser isn't. We just got one in terms of Disney. He is a principal at Madison and Wall covering all things media for decades. There is a question here about why this is surprising, given that this transition was going to be awkward from cable to streaming. And it's a rocky process amid a lot of economic uncertainty. Yeah, I, I don't think it was that surprising. I mean, this was never going to be a better business than the one that uh, it's replacing. Right? You, they had a four, nearly 40% margin business in the media networks division back in uh, 10 years ago. And you're going to incur more costs for marketing, more costs for streaming, physically delivering content, and then you need way more content to make this whole thing work, and you can't forcibly bundle this is the right thing to do. It's the right way to make a business that survives for 50 years and beyond. And that's what I said when I was an analyst covering the stock and thinking, oh, this is about to put the fair price right now. Um, and that's kind of what's played out for everyone. Brian, there's this concern as we try to uh, grow subscriber bases or as different people, uh, different streaming companies try to expand their user base. Do you continue to raise prices? What do you prioritize, either increasing subscribers or increasing revenues? How is Disney doing on that front, given that they came in with a pretty disappointing projection of just growth? Well, here's the thing. They can continue to raise prices and still grow subscribers on a year-over-year basis. I think they'll continue to do so, as other services will when they raise prices. The problem is that's mon that money is coming out of uh, traditional pay TV. I, I published something on my Substack uh, this past week pointing out that there's about $100 billion of spending in the United States, at least, by consumers on pay TV services. Now declining in terms of actual spending, that's $100 billion of money that can go into these streaming services still mm -hmm. but it's going to come out of pay tv where's sports in five years brian disney has a huge effect on sports with the espn i get it but where is the brian weezer view on sports entertainment in five years yeah it'll still be super important i mean but bob Iger at least was uh he's wise enough to point out that there is an inevitability to espn in particular eventually having a flagship service as a streaming service. Uh, the reality is that not everyone needs to watch everything that's on uh, ESPN or on traditional uh, TV or sports. Uh, so it may end up being a little bit more niche, maybe not as uh, ubiquitous as it has been historically in the United States. I, I look at Disney, and I look at a creative guy as well. Is there a lot of cost-cutting to do? Is, is Disney, and for that matter, other companies like it, is there a lot of fat there to cut, or are they bare bones right now? You know, they talk certainly about containing their increases in spending on content, and it's hard to say what, what that is. I mean, certainly there's a, a great uh, story uh, in the journal about uh, what's happening for Paramount, um, uh, on content spending on Yellowstone and other related shows. And that's a good example, maybe a bit extreme in terms of spending. But I think in general that the thing is, if you if you spend more money on programming, you will get more viewers, right? They will continue to grow the platform, the streaming platform, as long as they continue to increase their spending overall on programming. They, obviously, they need good editorial choices in terms of making good content. We used to say content is king, and today we're talking about cost-cutting and a lot of these different platforms. If anyone goes anywhere near social media, they'll see a discussion of the writer strike in Hollywood that's affecting a whole host of different streaming networks. And I wonder how <laughs> dovetailed these ideas are, this idea that writers want to get paid, that content wants to get rewarded given the years of largesse, and the networks just aren't willing at this time. How much is that going to be a persistent battle based on the dynamic that we've been talking about? Yeah, I worry about that because I'm not sure how... Uh, how <laughs> 
First of all, both sides on the strike might be too optimistic in their expectations for how the industry is going to evolve. Again, I, I rolled up uh, all spending on video, including theatrical spending, DVDs, whatever left of that, streaming, pay TV, etc. And basically, I calculate about a 1% annual growth rate over the last 15 years every year on average. Maybe that's about right going forward. It's all shifting towards the far less profitable business of streaming. So there's less money to divide up whatever the outcome is. Brian, there was also discussion, just to finish up here with Disney, about uh, declining revenues on their cable networks from advertisers. How much of this is companies not necessarily having the extra money to advertise? How much of this is just all of the advertising moving to Google, to Facebook or Meta, to all of these other social media platforms? That's been a big factor for sure. I mean, we're seeing uh, television is probably declining by high single digits uh, at this point. I, I don't think it'll stay that bad all year long. It'll probably get less bad as the year progresses. Um, the typical advertiser is absolutely shifting their spending. Um, primarily, I think packaged goods companies are shifting spending into retail media networks, which are just doing fantastically well. Mm -hmm. uh, TikTok, for now, is at least still doing really well. There's a lot of new places that are seeing a lot of growth. I mean, Uber is an ad platform. Walmart selling ads, that sort of thing. Right. Brian, thank you. Brian Weiser from Madison and Wall with an update there on uh, streaming and the lack of profit out there. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app. Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.